consensus is, though, that there's huge vulnerability amongst very traumatised women and children from Ukraine who are at serious risk of exploitation. Sometimes it's forgotten that trafficking human beings is a reality also in the European Union. We have more or less 7,000 victims per year in the European Union. But I think we should not forget that there are a lot of victims which are undetected for different reasons. So the real number, it's much more important. We have to be very vigilant from a civil society perspective and work very closely with the state then about making sure we capture these situations and get them get people to the supports that they need as quickly as possible. Hello and welcome to this, the 10th episode of The European Lens. On this episode of the podcast, we will be discussing trafficking, sexual exploitation and sexual violence in the context of the war in Ukraine. There have been concerns at the dangerous situations on the borders of Ukraine, representing a significant threat to the safety of women and children who are currently fleeing the conflict. It goes without saying that the brutality of the war in Ukraine has shocked us all. The barbarity and inhumanity inflicted on Ukrainians in places like Bucha, Mariupol, Odessa and Kharkiv are war crimes. Murder, torture, death, rape, adults brutalised and traumatised, children separated from their families as they are forced to leave their country. In the context of this large movement of people across our continent, we need to be extremely vigilant for traffickers. In every dire situation, there is someone who seeks to profit. Unfortunately, Ireland, like many countries, remains a destination for women who have been trafficked from Eastern Europe countries, particularly from regions that are experiencing conflict and the war, including Ukraine. We need, of course, to be particularly conscious of the vulnerabilities that women and unaccompanied minors face as they flee war, even here in Ireland. Being alone at such a young age, it's one of the most terrifying things imaginable. I have met with some unaccompanied Ukrainian minors uh, who have come to Ireland in recent weeks, and I must say I admire their courage. I am joined by Brian Killeran, CEO of the Immigrant Council of Ireland and Barbara Condon, CEO of Ruhama, to discuss the situation for Ukrainians in Ireland at present. And I really want to thank you both uh, for joining me in this podcast. Barbara, perhaps I'll start with you. Um, What is the situation like here in Ireland? Have you come across any challenging situations or victims of sexual violence or sexual exploitation as a result of the war? Really, it's too early at this stage because it hasn't filtered down yet. The consensus is, though, that there's huge vulnerability amongst very traumatised women and children from Ukraine who are at serious risk of exploitation. Um, We are delivering training to reception centre staff, security, medical and healthcare staff on sexual exploitation and how to identify the signs of a person who is trafficked and what support services are available. And we're also recruiting a Ukrainian national to work with Ukrainian refugees as an assertive outreach caseworker. And this is a key role to be able to reach the Ukrainian community and raise awareness and support for anyone who's at risk of sexual exploitation. 
I've just come back from the border myself between Ukraine and Moldova, and they're very worried there at the border about criminal gangs exploiting people, either through bringing in drugs or, or trafficking or money laundering. So it's a very live issue. And of course, there's a history of trafficking uh, from Ukraine and Moldova. So there's a lot of vulnerabilities. Uh, Brian, what has your experience been to date? I suppose similar to Barbara, we're very conscious of the issue as it presents here in Ireland now because any, all of us with, with an experience in the area of human trafficking, that was one of the first things we all thought after February 24th, that this mass movement of people, in, in and predominantly women and children, in a very chaotic environment is exactly what traffickers would like um, as an environment to kind of apply their trade. So one of the things that we've done as an organisation is put together um, an emergency response forum from from a civil society perspective, there's 66 different organizations across Ireland that are providing different types of supports to Ukrainian nationals in Ireland. And as part of that, we have a subgroup on gender-based violence and trafficking. Um, Ruhama are part of that and numerous other organizations with expertise to offer. And really what we're doing is, is laying the groundwork now for what we think will be issues that present to services over time. There's been a lot of suspected issues as well of exploitative situations that have come out largely through the media where there are instances of somebody being offered um, a home in somebody's house and suddenly they're expected to cook dinner, suddenly they're expected to work, suddenly they're expected to go into what is essentially domestic servitude, which is we all know is a form of trafficking too. So there are lots of instances that are arising that are giving the indicators of trafficking as well. So really we have to be very vigilant from a civil society perspective and work very closely with the state then about making sure we capture these situations and get them get people to the supports that they need as quickly as possible. Well, that sounds like it's, you know, a very positive approach to be prepared. But of course, you couldn't over exaggerate, really, the vulnerability of so many women traveling on their own. And I saw it in Moldova, very young women with young children uh, without leaving without almost anything, any, you know, money, uh, clothes, uh, the basics of life, really, everything disrupted. So we are talking about huge vulnerabilities, potentially. And being very alert here in Ireland is so important. Are you getting that uh, emergency response form out to all of the uh, refugees in the different centres, Brian? Uh, how is that working? Because I agree, and Barbara mentioned this as well, being vigilant and being vigilant as people arrive. Absolutely. The, the forum is made up really essentially of uh, every, everything from volunteers and community groups working at a local level. And some of those will be involved in the hotels and the kind of communal centres that have developed across Ireland, um, up to national level NGOs as well, then that kind of have a remit across the whole Republic of Ireland. Um, and increasingly as well, we're linking that in with the state as well. So as Barbara said, Ruhama are, are very involved around kind of the training now around the, the sexual exploitation and health needs. Um, but there are so many settings that, it, that, that potentially Ukrainians are interacting with state services. So for example, we're talking to the health service executive about the health screening that's going on. Are they, are they trained around the indicators of victims of trafficking? So, and if they're not, you know, their civil society responses available to provide that training as well. So really it's kind of about identifying all 
the points of contact where somebody can be trained about the indicators and then hopefully be able to to spot that somebody has been exploited um, and then feeding that back into kind of the appropriate support services. So, you know, even in Ireland, the situation is quite chaotic. Obviously, the accommodation situation is very difficult. People are being moved around a lot. They might establish links in one place, but then have to be moved somewhere else a number a couple of months later and then kind of build up the contacts again. So, so really, we have to be very fluid and very flexible about the response because that's the reality of the situation. And if an individual Ukrainian woman, Barbara, wanted to contact, let's say, one of our specialist services like yourself or a rapes crisis centre, how would they find out about it if they're, for example, in a hotel in whether it's the Red Cow or City West or any one of the, as Brian said, the multiple accommodation places where Ukrainians are like how how would they reach out for help? Yeah, so all the different, well, not all, but a number of different services have translated their 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 posters into Ukrainian, and so leaflets and posters are are around in all the different centres. And um, we would also have outreach workers going out to the centres, so being present and doing in reach in the actual centres. I suppose one of the challenges with that, Francis, is is that there's not um there's not enough staff to go because there's so many centers so we're starting in dublin but we're recruiting for staff outside of dublin around outside further down the country so that we can get around to as many centers as possible but i think there has been a a great effort to get the information out there as much as possible um, and on different websites and definitely everything is in ukraine so that that's a really positive thing as well and are you finding, for example, that the HSE services or the social workers who might be working with unaccompanied minors or indeed with adults, are, are Tusla uh, getting involved in these centres and are they available to people there? Because obviously they need so much information. I mean, quite apart from the trafficking potential vulnerability issues, there's obviously basic social welfare information, access to work, if that's a, an option, childcare. Um, how are people getting information about all of that? What's your experience, Barbara? I think everybody is, is involved, but to be honest, the system is overwhelmed. Um, you know, healthcare, just take healthcare in Ireland. It's very difficult to navigate. There's long waiting lists for everything. And that's as an Irish person. So for a non-national, you know, there's even greater challenges there. But notwithstanding that, I suppose everybody has come together and is trying to provide as much of a service as possible. I know like we've trained a lot of frontline staff, not just the reception centres. You know, we have trained, we've done a lot of training with Tusla. We've done some training on, on child trafficking and MECPATs who work with child trafficking specifically. They've done a lot of training with Tusla as well. Um, and we would have done training with a lot of NGOs and with the guards and with um, other other healthcare services and including the HSC. So there is a lot of training going on at the moment. Well, that's great. I mean, I suppose that brings me to a question about uh, Commissioner Johansson. I mean, she's brought all the EU anti-trafficking uh, coordinators together. Have you a sense of an EU anti-trafficking plan working effectively, Brian, or is that does that seem a bit far away? I think... Um... 
the value of it is is in bringing together that expertise and and because it is su- such a i suppose a, an issue that we're all responding to um and is presenting in different ways across europe like that collaborative approach is incredibly important and the expertise and resources that are being kind of pooled in that are very useful at a national level i think the link between the eu level and the national level then is very important to make sure that that level of coordination and that level of thinking on the issue of trafficking translates to national responses. Like we have a lot of um, openness from Minister McEntee, our justice minister here in Ireland, and the officials within the Department of Justice. They're very cognizant of this issue and they want to work with civil society and they want to work with all the, the other providers and authorities around making sure that we're vigilant for this issue within the Ukraine response here in Ireland. Um, but the, the EU level of kind of coordination and the things that it suggests through the action plan um, are very important parameters for us to set on our work on a national level. So so I think it's really important. And I think the, the key then is linking that in with what's going on at, at a national level. Um, and, I, and I think there's, there's a huge amount of um, receptiveness of that from, from the relevant government departments here in Ireland as well. Well, that's good to hear. What I saw in, in Moldova, Brian and Barbara, was I saw a, a really important link. This was at the border between, if you like, the defence and security issues uh, for the refugees and the humanitarian. So there was a very strong emphasis on both and an alertness around both. And that brings me to a question about the level of awareness amongst the Irish, the general public, uh, about the potential risks and the needs of Ukrainian women. I'm just wondering, uh, particularly in relation to sexual exploitation and violence, I'm wondering, do we need to step up our awareness? Absolutely, Francis. I mean, sexual violence, it's very dark, it's very hidden and it's very uncomfortable. Therefore, we don't generally talk about it. Most people don't really want to take a closer look at the underbelly of society and sexual violence and the sex trade is the unspoken underbelly of Irish society. There's a lot we can do to step up our awareness, particularly where people are working in services where they encounter Ukrainian women and any women who are potentially at risk. You know, we've gone out to City West. We've seen the trauma. It's it's absolutely heartbreaking how traumatized and how extremely vulnerable these women are. And that places them at risk, particularly of, of ex- exploitation. And I think providing the training is important. And we, we've ran a campaign called Get the Full Picture, um, and it's real-life stories of victims of trafficking. Um, and we've launched a new video to, to raise awareness. People aren't aware of what, what's going on, but I think we need to invest and run national campaigns that have been successful, like our drink driving and domestic violence. We need to invest into sexual violence and really have that conversation. I think that's a very good idea, Barbara. We we may need to do more specialist campaigns around sexual exploitation and trafficking, because I think for you're right, for most people, it's almost beyond our imagining. And it's difficult enough to be alert to the science of trafficking. Brian, what would you say in terms of the the lay person who wants to help, who may be in contact with uh, vulnerable Ukrainian women or indeed women from other countries, what would be the telltale signs, if you like, of trafficking and, and, and vulnerability and how would you reach out? I think the situations are many and varied, as as we all know, in trafficking circumstances. But there are a couple of, of key indicators that something uh, untoward is going on. Um, and generally, you know, 
obviously there if it's a cases cases involving sexual exploitation there can be you know the use of premises in apartment blocks and apartment buildings and that's not limited to the cities it's, it can be across ireland in towns and villages as well where it seems that something is going on or it seems that something you know men are coming and going from a from a property um even though we are in ireland obviously targeting these issues very strongly also as well the individual person's approach to things may be very limited. There might be another person involved with them, somebody who's on their shoulder when they're interacting with services, somebody who seems to have their documents, somebody who seems to be um, controlling what they're saying or, or exhibiting some level of control over the person. Um, but as well, I think, you know, overall, the vulnerability of somebody in a trafficking situation can be very hard to spot because they may not be allowed to interact with people in the public. They may not be allowed to interact with services as well. So if anyone has suspicions or they want to bring somebody somewhere, we would suggest that civil society organizations are great places to start because the women themselves will have a lot of uh, reticence about approaching authorities. This is not just you know about Ukraine. This is kind of uh, across the board. So civil society organizations have confidential services like ourselves in Rahama they can talk to us we can give them some advice we can point them in the right direction um and that can be a good bridging ground then between them and interacting with us official state services so so come to the experts and try and link the people in with us brian and barbara i'm going to finish with uh, one question to each of you about if there was one thing the government could do to help the current situation uh, what would both of you point to i'll start with you brian we're getting to the stage now where we need to plan for the medium and long term because this situation isn't going to go away. So that's in relation to all the needs of Ukrainians, but as well in particular around the reintegration, essentially, needs of Ukrainians, including those that are, are suffering from PTSD, those that may have experienced sexual violence, exploitation or trafficking. So so we have to get beyond thinking now about the immediate response into the medium and long term response over the next 18 to 24 months, essentially, because this is a long a long haul in terms of the support needs of those that have come to Ireland and this mirrors essentially our overall kind of um, approach to migration and integration in Ireland where we need to get on the front foot and plan for it going forward as opposed to reacting to it. For me it would be the housing situation um, in terms of I suppose for current victims of trafficking there's no specific uh, gender specific accommodation women are housed in direct provision which is totally unacceptable that's for, for current victims of trafficking for Ukrainian nationals I think the housing situation uh, needs to be sorted as well you know they're moved around constantly so they've already been displaced from their country of origin and now they they're, they're housed and then they're, they're continuously moved around and it's just not acceptable I'd like to thank Brian Killeran of the Immigrant Council of Ireland and Barbara Condon of Ryuhama for joining me on the European Lens. I really appreciate your time and your expertise and I want to wish you continued success in the very important work that you do. I'm now joined by the EU Anti-Trafficking Coordinator, Diane Schmidt. Diane is responsible for improving coordination and coherence among EU institutions, EU agencies, member states and international actors for developing existing and new EU policies to address trafficking in human beings. Diane, I might begin by asking you to talk about the scale of the problem and maybe with particular reference to conflict as well and the Ukrainian situation. 
Sometimes it's forgotten that trafficking human beings is the reality also in the European Union. To say a word about the scale, uh, we have more or less 7,000 victims per year in the European Union. We should not forget that there are a lot of victims which are undetected. So the real number, it's much more important. Of course, there are also... Um, the situation is a little bit different from one uh, country to, to, to the other. In general, um, you know, there are different forms of, of, of trafficking. In the European Union, the m most common form is sexual exploitation. The second one is labor exploitation. But in the last years, there was more and more labor exploitation. So this is something probably we'll have to better take into account also in our work in future. Most of the victims are women and girls, but they also we realized that in the last years, the number of men has gone up. So we're seeing a, a changing pattern. Um, interesting, you might mention what areas of labor exploitation are women and men mostly being brought into? And maybe just to go back around the, the war in Ukraine, and are there any particular instances of trafficking in relation to that? Or are border guards and customs uh, picking that up enough? Yes, I think what I just said, uh, the majority of victims are women and girls. Obviously, all those who are working in the area of trafficking human beings really took the risk very seriously when we saw all these women and children arriving from Ukraine, uh, fleeing the military aggression in Ukraine. And I think it's, it's a very good example of anti anticipation because um, taking also into account that the Ukrainian citizens were among the top nationality in the European Union of victims already before the war, we, we were active very quickly and I started also to coordinate uh, with, the, with the coordinators in, in, in member states in charge of trafficking human beings. And this immediate reaction triggered also very specific action with awareness raising, uh, prevention, which involved civil society organizations, authorities on the ground, law enforcement authorities, judicial authorities, also border guards. Um, there were leaflets which were prepared, online information, um, also on social media to inform those arriving about the risk of, of being trafficked in the, in the European Union. You know, there was a big wave of solidarity, but at the end, there were also some people who tried to go to the border, who, who, or who proposed housing, accommodation, but with bad intentions. So this was taken very seriously, and this led also to a common new anti-trafficking plan which in my opinion went quite well. It was very quickly implemented. It's, it is still being implemented. And according to the information we have right now, there are only a few confirmed cases, um, which, which means probably that prevention worked, but we have to continue to monitor the situation, to be extremely vigilant and to, to to continue with our efforts. Uh, there was also training for, for border guards, for example, for law enforcement authorities, but also for civil society organizations who came into contact uh, with uh, potential victims or with refugees so that they had also the indicators needed to identify possible cases. What we still say today also to national authorities and especially to police, 
please do not forget to inform Europol about possible cases in order that Europol can help to detect cross-border cases or a new trend which, which should be neutralized as, as quickly as possible. Well, well done on that common EU anti-trafficking plan. And just to ask you a bit more detail about that and, you know, how much of a priority, I think it has worked well, how much of a priority are you seeing that it's being made of it in the member states? Are you are you pleased that member states are, if you like, capturing enough the issues around trafficking and realise just how widespread it is in all our communities? I think as regards uh, this, the, the situation created uh, by the military aggression in Ukraine, uh, the risk was really taken extremely seriously. And I noticed this also in all the contacts which I had to, with the member states. I also traveled to Romania and Poland uh, at the beginning, but obviously then people moved around in Europe. Uh, so it was taken extremely seriously. I must also say that, of course, we cannot see the common anti-trafficking plan in isolation because also the contribution of the European Parliament and the Council, who very quickly agreed to triggering the Temporary Protection Directive, was important because if you give temporary protection to refugees, they do not have to ask smugglers to get into the European Union. They had the possibility to have a permit, to have access to employment, to have access to education. And all these actions and all these rights together, of course, diminished the, the vulnerabilities. And um, and obviously, this, this helps also to avoid to fall into hand of people who want to exploit them for in the context of labor exploitation or sexual exploitation. Of course, um, one can al always do more. And as I said, also in relation to Ukraine, we have to continue to monitor the situation. Um, but as I said, also, we have to continue to raise awareness that, there, that trafficking is happening and to continue to, to cooperation with member states. There are some shortcomings. The first one, for example, is on identification of victims. Um, that's also why we uh, do not have the exact number of victims of trafficking human beings. There are different reasons for that. It's also not so easy. Uh, of course, victims do not always be, want to speak out because they are under pressure or under threat. And then uh, one uh, where I think we could do more efforts is in relation to the prosecution and um, the conviction of traffickers. Tell me a little bit about the women and children who fall prey uh, to the smugglers and who are trafficked. What's a typical operation and where are the women from? I can give you um, one example, for example, in the context of Ukraine. Um, the first case which was identified was a, a man, a Ukrainian man traveling with two young girls, uh, Ukrainian girls in a bus and there was a civil society organization uh, who found that there was something strange and then the police was waiting for the bus in, in Spain and indeed the person was convicted. So this is one case. But what we, we, we notice more and more, uh, especially for the moment, is um, also the lover boy method, for example. Um, this uh, happens, for example, in in Romania where young, uh, young girls are um, trapped by or lured into trafficking by a young man or an older man 
who says he's in love and uh, and then at the end uh, they they fall into sexual exploitation now what we see is that even this lover boy method is moving more and more online and young girls are recruited via the internet or, or via tiktok or instagram or other means and then either the exploitation takes place also online or takes uh, place in real life i think the big challenge we are f- facing right now um, is that also with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, trafficking human being has moved more and more online. Uh, and there, there are um, several elements of trafficking which can happen, not necessarily everything, for example, the recruitment or the exploitation or the organization of the transport or of the accommodation. So, And this is something which brings some challenges we have to address also in future. It's getting more and more complex, isn't it, Diane? I'm also wondering about the unaccompanied minors. I mean, we think there's about at least uh, since the outbreak of the conflict in late February, there may be 13,000 unaccompanied minors registered in the EU. And of course, that requires a very particular approach and they must be incredibly vulnerable. Yes, we know that unaccompanied minors, uh, especially in the migration process, but not only, also those in uh, in EU states, uh, are particularly vulnerable um, and could fall easily into the hands of of, of tra- traffickers who might want to exploit them again for labour, sexual exploitation, but also for uh, false criminality. Uh, they they might be used to to commit uh, small crimes or sell drugs or. Uh, or other kind of, of, of crimes. So it, it's particularly important to, to protect unaccompanied minors, not only in relation to trafficking human beings, it's more a question also of the protection of children in general. And um, in relation to Ukraine, the Common Anti-Trafficking Plan already encouraged member states to register unaccompanied minors and uh, separated children when they arrive, but also in the country of residence to refer them to child protection authorities, uh, to uh, give them um, guardians um, and to to take all the measures in order that they they are uh, protected. We also uh, recommended uh, to member states to to carry out checks and ensure proper vetting for all adults working uh, with the children. Um, so this was an important point. It was also taken up in uh, in specific guidelines which were prepared on unaccompanied minors and, and separated children. Of course, registration could be done a little bit better. How are member states reacting to that? I mean, how many member states have individual plans for minors, for unaccompanied minors? Member states, uh, they had already, there were already several actions going on in general on unaccompanied minors uh, in 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 the member states. Now, in uh, I can only speak in in relation to the implementation of the of the plan here. The problematic around uh, unaccompanied minors is more generally a question also of protection of children, uh, and has to be taken very seriously in member states. I'm wondering about the lack of accommodation uh, that many refugees and indeed asylum seekers um, are facing. Are there particular risks of trafficking because there isn't the accommodation or even indeed from some of the centres that we have where either asylum seekers or the Ukrainians who are now deemed to be refugees effectively are staying? Have you Are you seeing concerns about that across the member states? 
I think on this also the temporary protection directive was very clear that um, those who, who have the right for, for temporary protection should also have access to suitable accommodation or if necessary receive the means to obtain decent housing. And I think also in general the Commission has done a lot to support member states in order uh, also with financial support uh, in order to provide accommodation. Uh, of course it's not it's not easy. There was also the, the Safe Home Initiative, um, which also supports uh, initiatives taken at local, regional and national level uh, in cooperation with the private sector. Um, at the beginning of, uh, of, of, of the aggression, when people arrived, of course, member states were not prepared. Um, there were uh, some people offered accommodation or housing. Um, but they expected something in exchange or it could it could have led to to exploitation. This is also why this prevention campaigns and awareness raising was extremely important. And we have also published on the website of the European Commission and uh, civil society organizations were ac active with leaflets and info online information on what to do, not to accept um, every proposal but try to find out also where this is coming from and go through national authorities or organizations. What we see today of course we have to be careful because solidarity can go, go a little bit back. Refugees are often um, living in families for a long time and this can also create uh, some tensions. So we have, that's also why I, I'm saying that we have to continue to, to monitor the situation because refugees could be in a situation where they need more money or they did not find immediate employment because of language barriers or they might have problems with with in the reception where where they are and and this could bring them to accepting offers uh, job offers or other offers which are not real offers but uh, behind their, their uh, traffickers who are Waiting. So ongoing monitoring is really important. A final question, Diane. I want to ask you about what the EU can do to help those countries bordering the conflict. If you like, for example, Moldova, can we reach out and can you, uh, in your job, can you work with countries like Moldova? I think it's very important to work with, uh, with Moldova, as it was also important to work in this context with Ukraine, because at the end, uh, uh, prevention started already in Ukraine on the other side of the border. So we worked very, very closely with Ukraine, but also with Moldova. And uh, we have on the 20th of October, we have uh, an operational meeting with Moldova, which uh, I will co-chair with uh, the Minister of Interior. Um, to discuss how we can reinforce our operational cooperation in order to address trafficking in human beings. This is not only linked to the situation on Ukraine, uh, it's also linked to the fact that there is a problem of trafficking in Moldova uh, and the authorities take this very seriously and we have also a lot of victims coming from Moldova in the European Union and also traffickers. So, um, so it's extremely important to, to work with our neighbours, including Moldova. Well, Diane Schmidt, who's the EU Anti-Trafficking Coordinator, thank you so much for joining me today on the European Lens podcast. Uh, may I take this opportunity to wish you the very best with the really important work that you're doing on our behalf across the EU and beyond. Thanks to all of my guests for joining me on today's episode. We'll be back soon with another episode of the European Lens. Until then, 
Thanks for listening and take care.